Good morning, rise in freedom. I'm Austin Peterson. You're watching and listening to the Wake Up America Show at wakeupamericashow.com. Thankful to have you here. Today is Monday, October the 9th, 2023, and we're thankful to have you joining us on the show today. Make sure that you click like and subscribe to the channel today. If it's your first time watching us and you'd like to get updates when we go live, which is every Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Time. All right, well, let's hit it. It's one story, it's one big story. Mayhem in the Middle East. Israel now at war with Hamas. Over the weekend, Hamas terrorists attacked the nation of Israel in a surprise attack on the morning of a Jewish holiday, in Katora. We're going to be talking about that this morning with three special guests. At 7.30 a.m. this morning, David Winery. He is a Jewish Republican from the state of Missouri, a Republican activist. He'll be joining us this morning to talk about what's happening in Israel with his unique political take. That'll be at 7.30 a.m. You don't want to miss David Winery's take on what's happening in the Middle East. So a Midwestern view on what's happening in the Middle East. Of course, this show does broadcast live from Jefferson City, Missouri, and we do have a lot of Midwest listeners. So we'll be speaking to that uh, up front at 7.30 a.m. Central Time. So about 30 minutes from now. At 8 a.m. this morning, who created Hamas? That's a question that's been floating around the internet this weekend. Spike Cohen, former Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate and a Jewish man himself, will be joining us at 8 a.m. Central Time to answer that question, to talk about the conflict in the Middle East from his Libertarian perspective. We'll hear from him at that at 8 o'clock this morning. You don't want to miss Spike Cohen at 8 o'clock this morning with his unique take. And finally, former military service member John Burke will be joining us this morning at 8.30 a.m. as someone who served in the Middle East uh, and a Texan and the host of the All-American Savage Show. John Burke will be joining me this morning at 8.30 a.m. to answer the question, where did Hamas get all of those American-looking military rifles that they were using in this attack on our friend of Israel? But first of all, before we, I, I launch into an explanation of what's been going on over the weekend to catch you up, uh, I just want to say a few things on a personal note on this one. And obviously, this is a difficult perspective, and I am not an expert on Middle East politics. The most that I could say that I know is just at least a profound understanding of the religions involved with my background uh, in my religious upbringing. Um, However, for those of you who know where I come from, my personal point of view is I am a secularist uh, and a secular libertarian Republican, someone who believes in individual rights and liberty and self-determination. I think it's important for us to start by acknowledging the profound suffering that is being endured by innocent civilians who are being caught in the crossfire of this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we should say that our hearts go out to those who have lost their lives, their homes, their loved ones. Uh, the human cost in any conflict is always immeasurable, and it's essential that we never lose sight of the individuals who have been affected by these tragic events. At the same time, we have to recognize the deep-seated historical and religious ties that bind the people of uh, Israel to their ancestral homeland. The right to self-determination is a fundamental principle that we hold dear and I believe that Israel's existence is a testament to the resilience of a people who have overcome immense adversity. As a libertarian, I believe in limited government intervention, and I emphasize individual liberty. I do believe also in an America-first approach that prioritizes the interests and well-being of our own citizens. In this context, I tend to urge against foreign entanglements 
and military interventions that do not directly serve the best interests of the United States. That being said, there have been American citizens who have been kidnapped and perhaps even killed by the terrorists Hamas in this conflict over the weekend. In this episode, I will hope to foster a nuanced discussion that respects the sovereignty of these nations, emphasizes peaceful solutions to a certain extent with a respect for the justice that is owed anyone who has violence that is done against them. There are too many complexities in this conflict that, uh, that are competing interests for us to be able to oversimplify many of these things. And while I don't hope to complicate uh, certain things, such as this idea of who is right and who is wrong, uh, I do hope that at least in some ways that the end of this will involve a more peaceful world, one that respects the rights and dignity of all of the individuals who are involved in this conflict. Let's get you up to speed, and then we'll talk about what's, uh, what my libertarian take is on these events. I will say this um, first, that now let's just go ahead and get started. It's, I, I will caution you that some of the videos that I will be playing this morning um, may be considered grotesque. Some of them may be a little bit too, uh, just too harmful or harsh for very young people to watch this morning, although I do keep that to a minimum. And of course, uh, I try and make this show as family friendly as possible. This is not the type of topic that lends itself to um, holding back in large terms. Now, the Israeli military has already launched a powerful wave of uh, counterattacks in Gaza after retaking control of the towns uh, south that were taken by Hamas. The war in between the Israeli militants and their forces has now entered its third day. More than 48 hours after these attacks from Hamas, they're designated a terrorist organization by the United States, by the way, they launched a devastating attack from Gaza. The Israeli military has been fighting for towns uh, in the south of Israel, but those operations have largely ceased. The military is still using aircraft and tanks to force out remaining militants who are hiding uh, in certain areas and small areas, but large-scale battles in the towns have mostly ceased. Uh, the military spokesman Daniel Hagari for Israel has said that there are no battles right now in the towns, but there, it is possible that there are still terrorists in the area. The Israeli military has gone on the offensive. They're, they have been conducting waves of powerful attacks, and many residential cities in Gaza have been pounded by retaliatory fire. Two million people uh, live in the densely packed Gaza Strip. The Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant has ordered a full siege of the Gaza Strip. They have already faced years of restrictions on the movement of goods and people there, um, and the Israeli Defense Minister has claimed that there will be no electricity, food, or fuel that will be allowed to be delivered to Gaza. How did this begin? Well, it started with Hamas fighters tearing multiple holes in the barrier that that separates Israel and Gaza in a surprise attack on Saturday morning. It's, they attacked from land, sea, and air. About a thousand Palestinians from Gaza initially pushed about 20 miles into Israel and breached four military bases. They killed hundreds of civilians and soldiers and took scores more back into Gaza as hostages. Some Hamas militants took up positions in civilian efforts and uh, there, have, there, were, uh, there are multiple breaches in the wall between Israel and Gaza. The military has been using tanks and aircraft to prevent more fighters from crossing into Israel at the moment. 
More than 700 Israelis have been confirmed dead and 2,408 have been wounded, according to Israel's army radio. At least 493 Palestinians have been killed and 2,751 injured. Isn't it amazing how quickly so many people can die? These numbers, they we just rattled them off at some level, but thousands dead already in such a short time. It's unbelievable the, the power that these militaries have, the awesome, terrifying power that the military has. Uh, this is a video that was released by the Israeli Defense Forces of them preventing the uh, incursion of some Hamas terrorists from entering Israel. As you can see here, these are from their combat choppers. Take a look at this. Some of these might be 40 millimeter cannons. You can see there and the, bar the barrier as they're crossing over into Israel. Now, the the um, video that many people have been circulating of an attack on a uh, an ongoing rave in Israel resulted in the kidnapping of several Israelis, several foreigners. Some of them may even be Americans. Take a look at this. You can see as this rave is going on in the background. I'll go ahead and turn that volume down here for you. You can see in the sky there right around there these are the uh airborne fighters coming in now how did they come in my first question was how did they you know did they drop the many of them have been dropped from parachutes which must mean that there must be at least partially some kind of an air force here right which of course leads to the question of what role did any outside forces have to play and hamas has stated that the country of Iran did help them in the planning of this attack, which of course you might imagine. Now, we, I do want to caution that although I did vet to the largest extent that I can many of these videos, I am not a professional news organization with a team of researchers who can verify that some of this information it could be real or fake. Now, some of this that I'm about to play for you, for example, this video that we're watching right now, as I understand it, is not from the actual attack. This video, however, is from the propaganda of Hamas to, to show how these people managed to land such a daring raid. Take a look at this. Now, see this, uh, this is an interesting um, uh, tactic. Now, what are we seeing right here? Now, what we're seeing here is an actual literal attack from a drone. Technology, military, military technology has just gone wild. And I do look forward to speaking to John Burke later this morning uh, at 8.30 a.m. Central Time to talk about some of the technology that's in use here. But take a look here what, uh, what this is. So you can see here we have a, a communications tower and something was just dropped from the drone that you can see. This is likely to be C4. Right, some other explosive here. And it's possible that, uh, that this is being dropped from a drone.
Now, this was an interesting assault here as well. It looks like another um, another drone attack. Here you have uh, what appears to be uh, an Israeli machine gun position, also drone control. This is hum pure Hamas propaganda, like I said, much of this is very brutal footage. Please, if you if you get queasy stomach over things like this, you can look away. Taking women, kidnapping here. Now watch this operation. This is interesting. You can see here, this is a mounted machine gun position here, an Israeli mounted machine gun position. And the drone moves its way in. Now watch this. See this right there? You could almost miss it if you didn't quite understand what's happening here. You can see the drone moving in with the explosive. There's This is the Israeli machine gun that we have here. It looks like a 50 cal. Drops the explosive device on top of the machine gun. Israeli rockets fired from the Gaza Strip. Well, at least the terrorist music is catchy, if you will. Um, here we have uh, more footage of them actually being dropped in from parachutes. Which leads me to question in terms of their capabilities. And again, we will have John Burke joining us this morning at 8.30 a.m. Central Time to talk a little bit about how exactly they could have conducted a paratrooper operation. Take a look at this as Hamas fighters are dropping in over Israel. We have some context here. This building is shown as the Egyptian Military Academy. Of course, there have been people who have been attacked, kidnapped, and killed even in Egypt this morning that we are reading reports of. Take a look here. Oh, you run toward it. Doesn't make any sense here. This is going to be probably the more controversial uh, part of the Wake Up America show. Good morning. If you're just tuning in, my name is Austin Peterson, and we're glad and grateful to have you here as a viewer of the Wake Up America show. If you're just tuning in right now, uh, we'd love it if you could do us a favor and click like and subscribe to the channel so that you can get updates when we go live, which is every Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Time. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this conflict this weekend, and you can text us at 573-319-1586. That's 573-319-1586. If you'd like to have your opinion heard, you can text the show at the text line and let us know if there are... Um, if there are uh, news updates, breaking news that you think that we uh, should be covering, please do send that to us at 
319-1586. Now, I do confess that I am not an expert on Middle East affairs. Very few people are. Of course, the joke is on the internet that everyone all of a sudden is a is an expert on Middle Eastern affairs, but that is something that I am not. However, uh, I do pay attention and listen to thought leaders on these topics. And while I do come at these uh, these kinds of questions with an open mind, I definitely do come down on a certain side. And most of my uh, views, informed views uh, of the question of Israel and Palestine are informed by the philosopher Ayn Rand, who had a very harsh take uh, on the question of Israel versus the, the Palestinians when she appeared on Phil Donahue's show in 1979. Of course, Hamas didn't emerge until 1983, but this is a conflict that has been going between Israel and the Arabs for quite some time. And I, I found her answers to be, while very controversial, to be also quite profound. I wonder what you think of them. Take, let's hear, let's take a listen to what Ayn Rand, liber, um, as capitalist philosopher Ayn Rand had to say about Israel and the Middle East. I'd like to know your opinion on the United States' foreign policy and what is happening in the Middle East right now. Uh, right now, I'm not sure we know what's happening. I think that the United States' foreign policy has been disgraceful for years, for decades. I would say roughly since the New Deal, and in part even before that. Amen. But if you mean whose side should one be on, Israel or the Arabs, I would certainly say Israel because... Because it's the advanced, technological, civilized country amidst a group of almost totally primitive savages who have not changed for years and who are racist and who resent Israel because it's bringing industry and intelligence and modern technology into their stagnation. Philosophy of objectivism. That's right. I just have one point that I think should be made, Mr. Random. Time fleeting here. I'm, your characterization of uh, the situation in the Middle East came down rather gratuitously and in a, in a very uh, angry way on the Arabs and without discussing the merits of either side in a most complicated and painful collision of cultures and peoples in our, in our world. Why can't why couldn't the, uh, the men, the millions of men, women, and children who are Arab and who find themselves in this desperate conflict and look around wondering when, where peace will be, why can't they be angry with you for your characterization of them, your, your slap at them, your roundhouse criticism of them, when you don't seem to be able to tolerate a questioner who suggests that she disagrees with you? Characterization is... You do not accept any, any criticism unless you level it. No. I don't resort to terrorism. I don't go around murdering my opponents, innocent women and children. That is what I have against the Arabs. That takes the conflict out of the sphere of civilized conflict and makes it murderous. And anyone, private citizens, who resort to force is a monster. And that's what makes me condemn and despise them. Fascinating. What did you think of Ayn Rand's view on this one? 
obviously this is a conflict that has sparked discussion worldwide. If you're just tuning into the Wake Up America show, good morning. I'm your host, Austin Peterson. We're glad and grateful to have you here. Make sure that you click that like button and subscribe to this channel so that you can get updates when we go live every Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Time. It looks as if Roger Hirschline appreciates the clip and the find. Well, thank you very much, Roger. We're glad to have you here. I did play that clip over the weekend uh, and share it with my followers on Twitter as well as on Instagram, of course, which sparked much conflict uh, and people disagreeing with Ayn Rand. Uh, I have to say I agree with Ayn Rand to a large extent. I mean, the, uh, the, over the past few weeks, I have been reading and studying uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and reading his book, Beyond Good and Evil. At some point, the the claims made against one another between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you know, blend so much into one another that it can be difficult to art to find who has some sense of moral high ground, if any. And I think that one of the big mistakes that many people make is to make moral equivocations between civilizations and between cultures as if it, there is some idea of moral relativity between cultures and, and races of people that, uh, that often war with one another. But I think that Ayn Rand has a good barometer for which country or which nation state may be more worthy of support over another, because they can all say, well, you've killed children and women and children in your strike, and you've killed women and children in your strike. We, therefore, we have the higher claim, therefore, we have the higher claim. And being that I am not religious, right, I, I don't come from a, a Zionist view that is tied to an American evangelical fundamentalist view of Israel having a holy claim to this land. But neither did Ayn Rand, which is why I really appreciate her point of view on this one, her being secular as well that her argument for the moral superiority of Israel is, one, that they don't go out and commit acts of terrorism in the way that it is being committed against them by Hamas. Their violence is retaliatory violence. And two, they are the technologically superior and liberal, not bad liberal, good liberal type of civilization. I mean, what could be a better example of that, of you, of Israel being the more westernized, liberalized nation state than the fact that these Hamas terrorists attacked a rave, right, where women were out dancing in the type of clothes that you might see them dancing at in a, in, here in the United States, right? W what could be a, a better indicator of the difference of values between those who demand that their women be covered head to toe attacking a nation where people are, young women are free to dance publicly and openly, right? And of course, social conservatives can take their view on that as they, as they please. It's not to say that Israel is not blameless or the United States hasn't committed uh, atrocities in its past either, right? It's not to do that. But I do think that it is wrong to have a moral equivocation between, for example, the United States and Russia. That I don't believe there is a moral equivalency between the United States and Russia. Frequently, when people look at World War II, for example, they'll try and say, they'll try and have a moral equivocation 
between the United States and Japan. If we can divorce ourselves from the Middle East, and let's look at that case study for just a moment. We are going to get David Winery here in about five minutes. I'm going to send him the, um, the text message in just a moment. We're going to get him in here to weigh in on this. But there is no moral equivocation between the United States and Japan. Right? To, to morally equivocate between the United States and Japan is to ignore what Japan was doing in China for a decade before World War II broke out. It's to ignore the rape of Nanking. It's, to, to, it, it's frequently many American libertarians who are non-interventionists, as I am to a large extent, will criticize the United States' oil embargo uh, of Imperial Japan while ignoring the, uh, the fact that the reason why that oil embargo existed was to prevent Imperial Japan from raping and slaughtering its way through China at the time. And so the question you must ask yourself is, does China have a right to American oil to use to go and to, to uh, enact imperial policies in China to rape and slaughter and murder the comfort women of Japan? So ask yourself this, are you morally equivocating between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Because I agree with Ayn Rand personally, that there is not a moral equivocation between Hamas terrorists and the Israeli military. But I'm open to hearing your thoughts on this. You can send us a text at 573-319-1586. Again, you can text the show at 573-319-1586. I want to hear from David Winery on this, Jewish man, when we get back on the Wake Up America show. Don't go away at wakeupamericashow.com. All right. Well, technical questions resolved. David Winery joining us right now. David, if you could respond to the uh, the attacks in Israel over the weekend. Well, it I from what I've gathered from the attacks so far, they were they were very well coordinated, and from what I've read, that they've been that Hamas has been planning these attacks for weeks with Iran. From what I've read, it goes all the way back to August when they were first started plotting these attacks, and. I do believe that one thing that people haven't mentioned much is that this actually happened on the 50-year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and this is actually the, the biggest casualty event for the Israeli military and the biggest incursion for the Israeli military that they've dealt with in 50 years. And I do believe that I do believe that I think maybe they should have been a little bit more. It's kind of like all, how America always prepares for something weird to happen on 9-11. Maybe they should have thought that something could have happened on, you know, the 50th anniversary of Yom Kippur War, but that's neither here nor there at this point. Now, uh, David, we're both Republican activists here in the state of Missouri. The typical response that you'll get from Republican and Democratic politicians alike, of course, is to offer a full-throated support of Israel and its, uh, and its right to defend itself from these kinds of attacks and incursions. However, we do see that the political left is rallying on the streets of New York City over the weekend in support of uh, Palestine and in support of Hamas. Um, when you see these, uh, these political reactions to it, from that you know, sort of knee-jerk reactions from the right and left, I wonder sort of where you come from on this and sort of how you look at the political responses that have happened to this over the weekend from you know the american political sphere left and right well as you know i'm kind of a big fan of trying to avoid war at all costs and i do believe that what's been going on in israel for a very long time is that you have you have irreconcilable issues that aren't going to solve themselves through war and 
you know, I've read reports from up to a thousand Israelis are dead. That rave that you were talking about earlier, even the Israeli military has confirmed that they cleaned up 260 bodies at that rave and could have taken dozens and dozens of people hostage and brought them back to Gaza. And so, and now you're looking at the response from Israel, which is basically leveling Gaza. And also the response then from Hamas is they're just shooting more missiles into Israel. And you just kind of kind of look at this is that, you know, the body bags are going up, up, up on each side, but nothing is ever going to be solved at this moment. And you would kind of think that if Israel's on the verge of peace with Saudi Arabia, of all people, and we have made inroads of having some peace through the Abraham Accords with other Arabic countries in the Middle East, you would kind of think that something would have to happen to cause Israel and the Palestinians to try to bury the hatchet here. Because there is no future in the Middle East as long as these wars keep going. And, you know, when you see like the left rallying like they are in New York and Seattle and various other places in the country, you know, Israel does put themselves in kind of indefensible positions when they have the Gaza Strip is basically a prison. And that's a hard, that's a hard, you know, that's a hard position to defend. I mean, would the, the, the problem, of course, is, David, is that, that the, the Gaza Strip only exists because of Israeli beneficence. They, they, they pulled back unilaterally after the last war 50 years ago to allow them to, to live in peace to a certain extent within that property, whereas it would not have been in their own self-interest for them to do so. And now, of course, all, the, all that it's done is become a hotbed of terrorism. It seems as if militarily the right position would have been in 1973 to just push the Arabs into the sea. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that, that once we had the chance, that's kind of like you know, MacArthur, he just marched all the way to Peking at the time. Right. You know, or should, you know, sure. I mean, William Tecumseh Sherman's march, you know, burned Atlanta and marched to the sea. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that, but, you know, that didn't happen. So now we're kind of left with this festering sore over there. And, you know, I've always been, I guess, a little bit cynical about this because I always go back to the Oslo Accords back when Arafat and Fatah, and basically they had a chance to have almost, they had a chance for a two-state solution. And, you know, they didn't take it. And I don't think there's ever going to be a thing where, I mean, when we eliminate all the Palestinians in the world from that area, or when, or to think that everybody's going to eliminate all the Jews from that part of the area. So we have to try to come up with something where we can mutually live together. The best solution that I have heard actually came from Netanyahu in the 1970s in a debate you can watch on YouTube before it was known that he was uh, a Mossad, an, an operator. He was, you know, publicly known at least as, uh, you know, just a former MIT student and uh, and an economic consultant. And he, he was known as Benjamin Natai. And in this debate uh, on the question of a two-state solution, he resoundingly rejected the idea of a Palestinian state on Israel's doorstep. And his argument was that Jordan is already a Palestinian state. Would a 
reasonable solution be to remove the Palestinians to Jordan? I think that that's been looked at for a very long time. When you look at a lot of the maps from back then, they used to be called, they used to call it a Transjordan as being part of Jordan at that point. And there is, and there, and I would say that there would be, that would be a good thing to do. But I think what's going on right now, if you look at it from a demographic viewpoint, you know, the Palestinians and the Arabs that are in Israel, that are, that are in Israel proper, you know, they're out, they're out, for lack of a better term, out breeding the Israelis, and they're going to start outnumbering the Israelis in the Israeli state. So, and I've always kind of had another cynical viewpoint about the two-state solution. If you go ahead and give the Palestinians their own flag, and then they pull this stuff, you know, then we have every legal right in the world to go ahead and level it. Because that's kind of, if you go back to the rules of warfare, if you know you're attacked, you're allowed to level it. But now, but the very fact that we're kind of dealing with this occupied territory situation, and they don't have their own state, I think it complicates it, and it makes us look whole horrible in the international community when they are these occupied territories and they have become in a way our I mean Israel's responsibility and then when this happens then we go and we level them like we are right now and then they and then everybody brings up the Palestinian right to self-determination and everything else and then we just and Israel just gets trashed in the international community and so in a way the two-state solution would end that because if they had their own flag and they had their two-state solution, then they would have to stay peaceful on their borders, or then it's two sovereign nations attacking each other. And that gives a lot more legal legal standing to go to war then. If you're just tuning into the Wake Up America show, good morning. I'm your host, Austin Peterson. We're glad and grateful to have you here. Please click like and subscribe to the channel that you're watching us on this morning so you can get updates whenever we go live. I'm speaking to David Winery. He is a Republican lawyer, political consultant here in the state of Missouri, uh, and he's joining us this morning to share his thoughts on the conflict between Israel and Hamas. David, if I were uh, an Israeli, if I lived in Israel and there was and and I was under attack from a terrorist organization within the Gaza Strip, I would be advocating to level the entire thing and to push to the sea. I mean. If in here in Jefferson City, if suddenly the, the you know, we saw the return of the, uh, what's the Osage Indians tribe and on the nearby reservation, they were launching missile attacks into the, into Jefferson City. You know, I wouldn't say that we should spare any resources necessary in order to fight back. I mean, would you? No, I wouldn't. But there's another issue at play here in that. You know, say, you know, Egypt has come out saying they're very angry about this. Iran has come out and say they're very angry about this. Even countries that we were close to having some peace with, like Saudi Arabia, have came out and say they're very angry about this. And if you want to just call it a numbers game, you know, I mean, Israel is surrounded by countries that are that are hostile towards it. And on a purely numbers game, if everybody were to decide to launch against Israel, I mean, sure, we have plenty of stuff and we can do other things, but that's also asking for Israel to have to use their nuclear weapons. And I don't know that we want to go there, but when we were hopelessly out, we're hopelessly outnumbered. So I just don't know if, 
you know, just leveling Gaza is the solution because and then we do we have problems with the other Arab states surrounding us. Not to mention, Arab, but the other Arab states, they have no love for the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. I mean, uh, the, the Jordanians don't want to take the Palestinians in from the Gaza Strip into Jordan, despite them being a majority Palestinian nation, as it will. Uh, the, the Syrians, the Lebanese, do they want to die for the citizens of the Gaza Strip? Uh, it, does, uh, does Iran want to commit suicide over the Gaza Strip? I mean, it, even Russia and China, they don't want to die for Iran. Like They have much bigger fish to fry, and they have much more at stake in getting more deeply involved in a broader war at this. And they've got their own problems in Ukraine right now, which is another discussion we're going to have with Spike Cohen here at 8 a.m. Central here in about 15 minutes, David. But I mean, is it not possible that conducting a, a limited military operation that removes the threat of Hamas entirely is possible? I believe it is, but I also believe that you have a, I just don't know that Iran can be successfully neutralized, so to speak, especially the way they control the Strait of Hormuz and how much oil goes through there. But at some point, they have to be neutralized, right? We, we cannot continue to exist, to coexist with people who call for our death, who call for the destruction of us and our civilization and are constantly seeking the means to try and to engage us in armed conflict. And again, I don't see a moral equivocation between the United States and Iran, for example. Do you? No, I, I don't. But I do. I can take a walk in the, in the Iranian shoes, and I know where they're coming from on a lot of issues. And the other kind of disturbing thing that kind of came out of this, what's going on this weekend, is that the Taliban has offered, if they can get safe passage through places like Iran and Iraq, that they would be willing to go over there and start helping the Palestinians. And we really don't need that either. And Iraq has had quite a few demonstrations in the streets and they have been, you know, saber rattling themselves. So, you know, even if you look at it from a straight government standpoint that, you know, the governments are hostile to each other, but the governments don't necessarily always control their citizenry in these issues. Well, in this situation, in, in Iran, the citizenry doesn't control their government in Iran either. At uh, all. Yeah. David, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we let you go today? I would just like to say that, you know, I understand that there's a lot of hostility over there. I understand that a lot of countries want to see other countries eliminated. And I understand that there are a lot of very ancient hatreds and a lot of very new hatreds that have come out from what's going on in the Middle East. But if you're going to really solve this problem, we're going to have to try to find a peaceful solution. Now, that may be all puppies and rainbows on my point, thinking that that can happen. But I just don't see a military solution in the long run. Well, I like to hear those kinds of solutions. It keeps me optimistic whenever my warmongering side starts to break through. David Winery, a Republican lawyer from Kansas City, a friend of the show. Thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate you, sir. Thank you very much, Austin. I must be honest, my warmongering side came out for a while this weekend as well. <laughs> for sure. I've, yeah, I think it's uh, completely natural. There we go. All right. Early morning on Saturday, Thank October you. 7, our resistance stormed illegal settlements and paraglided across colonial borders. <laughs> All right. In this operation, white liberal chicks, man. The resistance fires more than five thousand rockets. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
These are American leftists celebrating the terrorist attacks on Israel. If you're just tuning in to the Wake Up America show, good morning. My name is Austin Peterson, and I'm glad to have you here. Please click like and subscribe to the channel. We'll be glad to have you come back and join us every Monday through Friday. This is a German woman, not Israeli, uh, not a member of the IDF, who was murdered by Hamas terrorists over the weekend. This is what these American leftist liberal white women are celebrating on the streets of New York City. A German woman murdered by Hamas terrorists. Here they have her body. They're parading it around in the street. There he is. Here we have uh, teenagers spitting on her as they drive and parade her through the streets. Spitting on her corpse as they parade through the streets. That's what these American leftists are celebrating. Socialist men. All right. In this operation, liberal white chicks, man. Sometimes I wish there was a hell they could go to. Here we have a debate uh, in 1978 from a young Benjamin Netanyahu, then known as Benjamin Natai, while he was an operative for the Mossad, debating the question of a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. Let's take a listen. PLO state is a deadly danger to world peace because this is before the creation of Hamas when the uh, territory was governed by the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. It is a surest guarantee of increased terrorism and war. However noble the idea may sound. I call now. Uh, just pause for just a moment. I, uh, Wood Hippie, I see that you're calling, my man. I will try and get to uh, phone calls uh, later this morning towards uh, the end of the show. So over the last 10 minutes of the show today, we, we will do phone calls. If you have time at 8.50 this morning, I will take calls if you'd like to call in. As my first witness, Mr. Benjamin Natai. Mr. Natai, welcome to the advocate. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mr. Natai is a... <clears throat> Graduate of MIT, he is a spy, a member of the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, but no, 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 an economic consultant. An Israeli, and he is a man who has written widely on this question before the House tonight. Mr. Natai, is the issue of self-determination the core of the conflict in the Middle East? No, I don't believe it is. The real core of the conflict is the unfortunate Arab refusal to accept the state of Israel. And I think, as was mentioned earlier, for 20 years, the Arabs had both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And if self-determination were, as they now say, the core of the conflict, they could have easily established a Palestinian state then, but they didn't. When did the issue arise then? Well, for 20 years, we didn't hear a word about self-determination. And in fact, what we did hear, those of us living in the Middle East, was about driving the Jews into the sea. Now, after 1967, under the leadership of the PLO, the hardline strategy shifted to adopting a moderate dressed up slogan, which uh, now talked in terms of first a secular democratic state and then replaced it with Palestinian self-determination. But what this really means, contrary to what Mr. Aruri said, uh, 
about 1977 being a changed year in the PLO's uh, objective. <clears throat> Let me quote you what the PLO Information Office said in a Dutch paper in 1977, in May 5th. 77? May 5th, 1977, yes. The statement was very simple. Our objective remains the destruction of the Zionist State of Israel. So let's keep in mind that what we're talking about here is not the attempt to build a state, but to destroy one. Hmm. Do the Palestinians have a right to a separate state? Well, Mr. John has been talking about human rights. Well, I think that it's, no, I don't think they do, but I think that it's quite instructive that the Palestinians who are invoking the right of uh, uh, self-determination, which is, a, is an attribute for separate nations, themselves are the ones who define themselves as part of the Arab nation. Now, no one is denying that there are Palestinian Arabs. There is a very distinguished Palestinian Arab sitting right next to me. But the Palestinians themselves, in the Palestinian National Covenant, the very first article, say that the people of Palestine, quote, are part of the Arab nation. Well, let's look at the Arab nation. It has 21 states, an area roughly the size of the United States, and one-sixth of the entire world's wealth. Now, add to that the fact that there already exists a Palestinian state, and that is Jordan, 60% of whose population is Palestinian. It's, I, think, I think it's quite interesting that Yasser Arafat and King Hussein, who are bitter enemies, agree on one thing, that Jordan is a Palestinian state. So what we're talking about is a demand for a 22nd Arab state and a second Palestinian state. What should, be, what should be done with the Palestinians on the West Bank? It's a problem, so what should be done in your opinion? Well, I think that the Palestinians in the West Bank are going to be offered the full human rights the full civil rights, as there are no Arabs are offered in the Middle East. No Arabs whatsoever have any full human rights or the right to vote for their own government. Those Arabs who lived in Israel in the pre-67 boundaries are the only Arabs in the Middle East who offer that right, and I'm all in favor of having the same Arabs living in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip being offered such a right in the final peace agreement. And we have so what is he saying there? So, uh, good morning. If you're just tuning in to the show, I'm glad to have you here. I'm Austin Peterson. We're listening to a young Benjamin Netanyahu uh, in 1978 in a debate about the question of a, a, the creation of a potential Palestinian state, of course, still being debated to this day, in, in response to a question about what should be done with the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza, Benjamin Netanyahu answers that they should be granted the full human rights that are afforded to Israeli citizens, the same the, the type of human rights that are not enjoyed in nations like Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iran, and other states. Uh, and, and so what really is he saying there? Of course, uh, he's saying annexation. We have uh, peace in the Middle East. Very briefly, please. Can we have yes, peace I in the Middle East? So. Look, I'm 28 years old. I've had to defend my country in two wars and in many battles. Nobody wants peace more than Israel. But the stumbling block to the road for peace is this demand for a PLO state, which will mean more war, which will mean more violence in the Middle East. And I think, I sincerely believe, if this demand is abandoned, we can have real and genuine peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Now we'll go to Mr. Adjami. Now Benjamin Netanyahu will be questioned by Palestinian Arabs. Mr. Adami, some questions for Mr. Natai. Mr. Natai, you've told everyone that the Palestinians on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip will enjoy full human rights. Could you tell me how that's compatible with the presence of Israeli forces in their midst? 
Well, uh, the Arabs living now under, the Arabs who lived in Israel, 400,000 of them, 400,000, uh, between 1948 and 67, as I said earlier, certainly enjoy full human rights. And as I I'm said, they're the only I'm not talking about ones. the Arabs in Israel. I'm talking about the Arabs on the West yes, Bank yes. and the Gaza Strip. If you let me, I'll answer your question, Mr. Ajami, please. Uh, the Arabs living in Israel are the only ones who are entitled to vote for their governments, the only ones who have representative in a parliament in the entire Middle East. Now, it's true that the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are now undergoing a period of transition. In fact, no Arab government has been willing to negotiate so far about this period of transition. And I think that when this transition, when negotiation period is ended, there is no reason why under either Jordanian citizenship or Israeli citizenship, these Arabs will not have the full human rights, the right to vote for their representatives as the Arabs in Israel do, as hopefully all the Arabs in the Middle East will do someday. Mr. Natai, does the state of Israel itself accept that the, the people in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip have the right to vote on whatever future they choose? Well, Mr. Ajami, we just, I just uh, outlined that in the event that this negotiation process will continue, I'm sure that what we're talking about is in fact eventual citizenship of some kind, either Jordanian or Israeli or in any other arrangement in which these people will certainly vote. Mr. Natai, you've given yourself the right to determine that you are an Israeli, but you've also given yourself the right to negate the other entity, which I think is not somehow consistent with global practice at this time, is it? Good morning. If you're just tuning into the Wake Up America show, I'm your host, Austin Peterson. We're glad and grateful to have you here. Because I am not an expert on Middle East affairs, I am bringing in people who are smarter than I am to answer these kinds of questions and playing clips like that. A young Benjamin Netanyahu in 1978 discussing the possibility of a two-state solution. I'm going to take a brief commercial break. I'll be back in a minute and a half to speak to Spike Cohen, former Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate. He's waiting for us right now. We'll be back in 90 seconds to talk about the creation of Hamas and what might be done from a libertarian's perspective in the conflict in the Middle East. We'll be right back. I'm from the Wake Up America show at wakeupamericashow.com. Good morning. Rise in freedom. I'm Austin Peterson. You're watching and listening to the Wake Up America show at wakeupamericashow.com. Happy to see you all 350 people here today. Bright and early on Monday, October the 9th, 2023. Thankful to have you here. Do us a favor, click that like button and subscribe to the channel if you're enjoying the content that you're hearing and seeing this morning so you can get updates when we go live, which is every Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Time. We fight for economic freedom and personal liberty here on the Wake Up America show. So if those are the principles that you believe in, I think would be a great show for you, a great way to start your day. Israel versus Hamas. Over the weekend on the Jewish holiday, Hamas terrorists issued a blistering attack on southern Israeli cities, uh, coinciding with air, sea, and land attacks. Israel is now pushing back and has cleared out many of these cities, but is still waging a campaign in the Gaza Strip. As I am not an expert on Middle Eastern affairs, uh, unlike pretty much everybody else on the internet, I've decided to bring in people who know a thing or two about it. Joining us now to discuss is the former vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party, Spike Cohen, and a Jewish man himself. Be interesting to hear his take on things. He's joining us now. Good morning, Spike. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Austin. It's always good to be on, man. Sure. Well, uh, take the floor, Spike. Your initial reaction to these attacks that have occurred over the weekend. Well, my initial reaction is it's horrific. I mean, that's everyone's initial reaction. You, you see that the 
horrific things that uh, Hamas has done in kidnapping people and killing killing innocent people. And of course, it goes without saying that you you know and already are seeing the reaction that's going to happen from Israel. And while Israel has a right to defend itself, the reality is there's going to be scores, countless, probably thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of innocent Palestinians who are going to be killed. And this didn't happen in a vacuum. This is this has been going on for many years now. Many thousands of people, uh, innocent people, being killed on both sides. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Now, well, the thing that caught my attention uh, over the weekend, Spike, was uh, a tweet that you had posted stating that Israel created Hamas. I wonder if you wouldn't mind elaborating. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, it's interesting because it kind of mirrors what the U.S. did with the Mujahideen in the in the 70s and 80s and then later with ISIS and Al Qaeda. And uh, basically what happened was Israel was dealing with uh, the PLO, uh, which was uh, a kind of a combination of a, of a series of political parties that were running the, the Palestinian territories and also had a, a terrorist or military component. And they were a they were mostly made up of Fatah. Uh, which was Yasser Arafat's party and other secularist and left-wing parties that made up the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, the PLO. And so Israel thought that in order to create a counterweight to that and to do some divide and conquer within Palestine, they would help foster the uh, a religious counterweight to the PLO and Fatah. And so starting in the late 1970s, they sought out uh, some uh, some clerics, one of them, the biggest ones being Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, uh, who was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza and uh, started giving him money, started actually recognizing his group, uh, um, uh, uh, Mujama al-Islamiyah, uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember names here. Uh, and uh, it was uh, Yitzhak Segev, who was the governor of uh, Gaza, the Israeli military governor of Gaza. He was given a, um, a budget by the Israeli government and uh, was actually giving money to uh, this organization and uh, was looking the other way while they were getting more and more militant and more and more extreme. And uh, and the, the reality was they were trying to create a counterweight. At the same time, someone by the name of Avner Cohen, who was a uh, Israeli religious affairs official, was warning the Israeli government that they were creating a terrorist group and that they were that that could potentially be even worse than the PLO was and was urging them to, to listen to him. And, and unfortunately, Israeli officials didn't listen. They got more and more extreme uh, starting in the uh, in 1987. They they founded th those groups that were being funded by the Israeli government formed Hamas. Uh, they started carrying out terrorist attacks soon after that. And it wasn't until the early 90s that Israel started actually cracking down on Hamas. So they actually uh, helped to foster Hamas. More than likely, Hamas would have never existed if it wasn't for the help of the Israeli government. We see the thousands of people that have died both on the Israeli and Palestinian sides as a result. And I'd like to note, more innocent Israelis and innocent Palestinians have been killed by Hamas than by the PLO or Fatah or any other Palestinian organization. So then would the alternative been then to just continue to allow the PLO to operate as it was? Was it superior because it was a secularist organization? Was there something special about Hamas being a theocratic organization that made it more dangerous than the PLO? Because if you're looking at it from the meta strategy here at the time, you know, if you're in an existential conflict, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend to an extent, right. right? Israel's foreign policy, to some extent, makes a certain amount of sense. So I wonder, you know, would the 
Would a better strategy have been to allow the PLO to continue to function as it was, knowing that it was committing terror attacks as well? Right. So this was less of an enemy of my enemy is my friend and more of an I'm going to help create a new enemy that's also my enemy that's going to be an enemy of my other enemy in the hopes that it'll one day be my friend. In fact, Sheikh Yassin used to say to Avner Cohen, uh, you're going to regret what you're doing in 20 to 30 years. And sure enough, that's what happened. No, I think a better strategy would have been to not fund terror organizations and to also crack down on the existing terror organizations. Another good thing for them to have done was to recognize the rights of the Palestinian people and to try to actually, in good faith, negotiate for peace. That didn't really happen in, 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 uh, in any real way until after Hamas came on the scene in an effort to try to now uh, switch tactics and legitimize the PLO, who they, they had just spent 20 years delegitimizing. Um, this is really it's, it's it's funny because it's a microcosm of U.S. neocon foreign policy in the Middle East, where they're going back and forth between who's my enemy and who's my friend, funding one side and attacking the other and making them both hate them more in the process. So, you know, you're in an interesting position, Spike, in this uh, story, and this is why I brought you on here today, because of one, your Jewish uh, ancestry and heritage. And two, your unique beliefs in the concepts of anarcho-capitalism, like the ultimate in anti-statism. So in looking at the conflict between Israel and uh, Hamas, we're talking about a terrorist organization on one hand versus a nation state on the other hand. Of course, you reject the idea of nation states entirely. If I'm, I I don't want to put words in your mouth. Am I correct or... I, I believe that free market governance is the best form of governance. I mean, I, I we definitely need to have governance, but I prefer it not be in the form of nation states. Okay. Uh, so noting that, then what is the proper response saying that we that we can't live in the past and that hindsight is 2020? What yeah. is the proper response by the nation state of Israel to deal with the kidnapping, attack, murder, and rape of its citizens that's occurred over the weekends? If you're in a position, let's say you're in Benjamin Netanyahu's shoes right now, yeah. uh, and like it or not, you're the head of a nation state. Do you yeah. dissolve the nation state or do you use the the functions of government to defend your people? What do you do, Spike? Right. So I think obviously the Israeli people have a right to defend themselves. And I think that, you know, uh, that it, it, not only should they do they have the right to defend themselves, but the Palestinians also had a right to defend themselves against the incursions that have happened there. That doesn't justify the the uh, the uh, you know kidnapping of people and the raping of people or, and the killing of innocent people, but nor does it justify the killing of innocent people that we're going to see over the coming weeks and months on the Israeli side either. Um, I think that it, it, it should be twofold what the Israeli government should do. They should definitely do what they can to crack down on Hamas, but they should also recognize that long term, this is just going to be a back and forth that never ends. It's been going on for uh, the better part of 100 years now. Uh, uh, since the uh, since the end of actually over 100 years since the end of World War One and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And uh, at this point, what they should be doing is recognizing that long term, they're going to have to come up with a way to either recognize uh, the Palestinian states as as an actual state and to stop with incursions and settlements and things like that. Uh, or it's never going to end. So it, it needs to be twofold. They need to be actually coming up with a strategy for peace long term. And yes, in the short term, they need to be defending themselves and they need to crack down on those that are trying to kill them. So you believe in a two state solution? I believe in this situation, I think that a two state solution is the only way forward. It's unfortunate because if you go far enough back, the original Zionists were just Jews that were voluntarily moving to, to Israel from Europe 
or moving to Palestine from Europe and were buying land from Arabs there or taking land that wasn't actually being used or, or owned or claimed by anyone, in some cases like out in the desert, and they were forming their own communities. And they lived in relative peace and harmony within the Ottoman Empire. It wasn't until after World War I when the European powers came in and realized that they didn't really want Jews in Europe. They figured they'd put them in, uh, in Israel. And they started shoving them in there. And that's when that started. That's when you started seeing the, the unrest that started happening. It's unfortunate we can't go back to that. But like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can't go back in time. So but, in the meantime now, yeah, it's going to have to be Jews and Arabs living together on, on their shared holy land. And that's more than likely going to look like a two-state solution. But, you know, as you've described it here, uh, in the late 1800s, Jews moved to the holy land they buy the land or they homestead the land, according to yep. our libertarian principles, doesn't that grant them the proper rights to the property of Israel, considering that they legitimately purchased and homesteaded that land? Yes, those people, yes, absolutely. The problem came after that, after World War I with the Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where the European powers are figuring out what to do with the former Ottoman Empire, and they start taking land from Arabs and forcibly, in some cases, expatriating Jews into uh, what is now what at the time was called Palestine and they later formed into Israel. That's when you started seeing the, the widespread unrest. Prior to that, you had, first of all, you had a, a tremendous number of Jews who had never left the area to begin with, the Mizrahi, who had been living there for, for millennia. And uh, and then you had other Jews that were coming and buying land. That was all fine. That wasn't there was no unrest in any real way during that time. It was after the uh, the, the British and the French came in after the Ottoman Empire fell after World War One that you started seeing all of this unrest. And it happened once we were no longer having people voluntarily work with each other and instead having people imposed on one another and having land taken from people. That's when this all started in earnest. Spike, uh, you know, you frequently uh, mention your Jewish heritage uh, in regards to your principle, your political principles here in the United States. And, you know, I, 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 you've lovingly have been monikered uh, bazooka Jew, for example. I yes. know you believe in the rights of individual uh, individuals to protect themselves and, and to have a defense of, for themselves. How does your Jewish heritage influence your views on the Middle East and, and specifically this conflict? I'm not sure it does any more than it influences my overall beliefs. I mean, I, I, I will say I don't I'm not Israeli. I, I've never been to Israel and my position on, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm using the same values that I would when I'm looking at the Russian and Ukrainian conflict or or U.S. policy in the Middle East writ large. I don't I don't have any any special uh, um, um uh, I don't have any special favor towards one side or the other. Um, I will say that. I mean, I, I, I don't. The fact that I'm I'm Jewish or that I have Jewish heritage doesn't mean that the Israeli people have any more rights than the Palestinian people, or vice versa. That's rather out of the ordinary for most American Jews. Wouldn't you agree? I think for a significant number of Jews, that may be true. And and for a significant number of people of any ethnicity, their of their their homeland may mean more to them than others. I respect people and and I respect people as individual individual people. So when I'm what I'm looking at right now is I'm seeing a lot of individual. That's why I'm not on either side here. I'm not on the Israeli government side, and I'm certainly not on Hamas or the PLO side or, or PA's side or Fatah's side. I'm on the side of innocent Israelis and innocent Palestinians who just want to live in peace and try to get ahead of this and try to live happy and peaceful and fulfilling lives.
So earlier this morning, I played a clip of Ayn Rand, who was being questioned by Phil Donahue, her uh, beliefs yeah. on the, the conflict. You've seen this this clip? Yes, uh, yes. Right. She came down very heavily on the side of Israel because yeah. she argues that an advanced technological civilization that believes in the, the foundations of liberal values, very much like you and I believe. I mean, the, the Hamas terrorists, you know, who, you know, forcibly you know, subjugate their women in their territories, landing uh, their paratroopers in, at an Israeli concert where women are half naked and dancing in public, I mean, I yeah. think is a very apt comparison of the difference of the views, the political views of these two, these two sides of the conflict. I disagree with you. I don't see these two sides as morally equivocal. I see Israel as being an advanced liberal society that has values that are much closer, much more closely aligned with libertarianism than those of Hamas. So what would you say to Ayn Rand and her views that we should support Israelis because of the fact that their views, their political principles, more closely align with the views that people like you and I hold, Spike? I think that the uh, views of Hamas certainly don't align with our views, uh, but I also don't think that the, the views of Likud, who is in charge of, of the Israeli government, align with our views either. And if you look at the history of how the Israeli government, and again, I'm being very clear when I'm saying the Israeli government, not the Israeli people, when, I, when you look at how the Israeli government and the Israeli military, which is really an extension of the U.S. military industrial complex in the same way that NATO is the European extension of the U.S. military industrial complex. When you look at the way that they've treated the Palestinians, the constant incursions onto their land, the constant violations of their civil rights, the constant denial of their ability to self-govern, um, that's in a way barbaric as well. And no, they, they aren't going in and, and, ma and, and kidnapping and raping people, but they have far, they've killed far more innocent Palestinians than Palestinians have killed innocent Israelis. So, I mean, that's if you look because just they, the body but count. But that's only because they can, right? If, right. If, if they, but they if, did. If, but, but that's if, the point. Right. They did. They can, right. but, but then they also did. But, but with that comes the counterpoint that if the Gazans or if the you know, the, uh, the Hezbollah terrorists, if they had the capability to completely wipe Israel off of the map, they would do it, Spike. You, they have stated that they would do it. The only reason that many of these, that the Gaza Strip or the West Bank exists is because Israel allows it to exist. So whether or not the Likud party or Hamas have some similarities to them, or whether they're both warmongering barbaric parties or not, I think, you know, you're sort of, in some ways, you're not ignoring, but you're not addressing the fact that these are this is a clash of civilizations you know the people in the west bank they it's it wasn't entirely created hamas wasn't entirely created by israel these people received the support of their people this terrorist group right the the government of israel and the government of hamas again not morally equivocated and especially when you look at it at as as a civilizational struggle we're looking at a liberal civilization versus an anti-liberal theocratic civilization am i wrong you're wrong in that you're you're trying to separate two different things because the reality is first of all that that liberal israeli civilization or at least the government that governs over it helped to create hamas at the exclusion of a part of a of another organization that while they were hostile to israel in some ways or at least hostile to israeli occupation of their territories they were at least willing to negotiate for peace 
And instead, they decided to create a counterweight, which ultimately led to the monster they've created. I'm not going to try to say that Hamas is better or even equivalent to the Israeli government. Clearly, they have no no uh, uh, right to have any kind of governance. And, and Israel has every right to defend themselves against them. I'm, I'm what what Hamas has done in the past few days is nothing short of barbaric. And I'm certainly not excusing that. What I am saying is that the Israeli government shares at least partial response, uh, responsibility for that, for creating it, and that Israel also, the Israeli government also needs to recognize that the reason that so many people have been associated with something like Hamas and have been drawn to something like Hamas is not just because at the time that they were banning people from being a part of the PLO, they were actually giving favor and funding to Hamas, but this is also a level of blowback from the policies of the Israeli government over the past few decades. So it's not to say that the Israeli government doesn't have a right to, def to defend the Israeli people. It's not to say that Hamas is not a barbaric organization. Of course they are. Both of those things are true. But it is to say that the Israeli government is far from blameless and that long term, after they've crushed Hamas, if they don't want yet another Hamas to come about, they need to have a peace plan that recognizes the rights and the self-governance of the Palestinian people. I just and I want to agree with you, but I think I can't. And the reason why is because beyond this concept of good and evil and the destruction of cities and innocent civilians, Beyond those questions lies just the simple question of the existential conflict here, the question of whether or not a, a society or a culture of people acting in their own self-defense must may be able to use the tools and the equipment and the tactics and the knowledge and the strategy that is required in order for them to be able to protect their civilization. So you ask yourself this, right? If humans were ever to uh, be invaded by aliens, for example, and we found ourselves, you know, completely unable to live with this other species, if you will, right? I'm not saying suggesting that, you know, Palestinians or another species or anything are lower than than Israel's. We're all humans. But ask yourself this, would we spare nuclear weapons if in a if in a conflict for the for life or death on the globe? Would we would we spare the innocent alien civilians who happen to be on the ships that are that are coming in that are attacking us would we do that in a conflict of life and death i think the answer is of course no we would not do that so what, if you if it, you look at the conflict between israel and palestine we're talking about a war of existence and if i have to cheer for one side or, or another i'm going to cheer on the side of those who happen to share largely share our liberal libertarian values regardless of whatever their governments believe. I don't care if the alien government, right? The alien government can be a Nazi government or whatever it is, you know, something like the Holy Roman Empire of Constantinople on alien spaceships. But if they come and they're attacking Earth and they're coming and trying to kill us, right? Nuke them all, kill them all, I say. I've, I'm from Buenos Aires and I say kill them all. <laughs> well, they would be, uh, we would obviously be justified to attack that invading force. But now if, if the question is, will we then have a right to nuke the planet that they came from and all the innocents? No. And it's interesting that you brought up the alien analogy because to the Palestinians, the Israelis are an alien people who came and invaded their land and occupied it and are violating their rights, which is why they believe that they should be able to kick them all out and remove all of them and kill any of the ones that won't leave. And, and I will say, 
Most Palestinians don't actually think that. Most Palestinians aren't a part of Hamas, but that is the Hamas mindset. These are aliens who came here onto our land, and we're going to remove them all. From the river to sea, it will be free, and we'll kick them all out. I don't agree with that either. I believe that the only way that you're going, because they're not aliens, they're human beings. Many of them uh, were there voluntarily, and we're now talking decades after the and that all of that happened. People are going to have to live in peace. And the only way that that's going to happen is after this you know, terrorist onslaught is, is put down and stopped, the Israeli government, who, as you said, are holding the cards here, needs to recognize that they're never going to be able to put an end to this until they allow Palestinians to have self-governance. And that's hopefully they aren't creating the next terrorist organization to fight against this ter terrorist organization because it's going to blow up in their face again. But at the very least, after they stop this, they need to recognize that long term, the answer is to is to have a peace plan that involves Palestinian self-governance. But they have an opportunity to have self-governance. They choose Hamas. Israel also during but, the no, but see, but this is a perfect the, example. The, but after the Six-Day War of nineteen, uh, after the yeah, in nineteen seventy-three, they had an opportunity to set up a government. But rather than do so, they chose to launch terrorist attacks. Into no, they Israel were banned from doing so while while Israel funded Hamas. That's the whole point of this. They weren't allowed to organize. They would crack down on groups like Fatah. They cracked down on any attempt to have any kind of self-governance while they simultaneously funded religious radicals who ended up becoming a worse but terrorist organization to, Spike, than anything to, before. They so no, they weren't all, allowed to have self-governance. It's only in starting in the all, 1990s that any real talk of Palestinian self-governance was allowed. But all of the, here's the thing. All of the time that they spent a lot of time planning an attack on Israel in Iran and that is time that they could have used planning for self-governance in Gaza and the West Bank. I, I, I'm going to give you a last word but I, I have one last question to uh, ask and then I'll, I'll let you sign off Spike and, and sure, plug anything ahead. you'd like to share. Um, the United States has and I consider myself to be very much an America first type of a person. The United States has sent the USS Gerald Ford and the American fleet uh, to Israel as a show of force and support. Your reaction to that? Uh, hopefully it doesn't suffer the same fate as the USS Liberty. Right. Spike, anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we let you go? No, I, I want peace on both sides. And long term, that's not going to happen until, until both sides are recognizing each other's rights. Spike, where can people follow you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube, Rumble. I'm on everything. Just look for Spike Cohen. You'll find me. Great debate, great discussion, Spike. Absolutely, as always, man. always a unique, a very unique conversation. And thank you for sharing it with us and being generous with your time. Absolutely, man. Have a great rest of your morning. Thank you very much. What did you think of Spike Cohen? Send us a text at 573-319-1586. You've given yourself the right to determine that you are an Israeli, but you've also given yourself the right to negate the other entity, which I think is not somehow consistent with global practice at this time, is it? Mr. Adami, I have never, never rejected another entity, nor have I ever declared my intent to destroy it, least of all the Palestinian Arabs who I fervently want to live in peace with. All I'm saying is that it is the Palestinian Arabs themselves, their leaders, Arafat, Muhsin, who Morris uh, Abrams quoted earlier, Farouk Adumi, the number two man in the PLO, these are the ones who say they are part of the Arab nation. These are the ones who say they already have a Palestinian state. There is no right to establish a second one on my doorstep which will threaten my existence. There is no right whatsoever. Okay, Mr. Natai, the... <laughs> you seem like a very patriotic Israeli. Does not the fact 
of Israeli dependence upon the U.S. in order to maintain its occupation on the West Bank and the Gaza. Does this not trouble you at all? Uh, Mr. Ajami, I have, you asked me as a patriotic Israeli, and I'll answer as someone who has fought in the Middle East. Uh, one of the things that I think is unique about Israel, in terms of all Americans' allies, all America's allies, is that it is perhaps the only one who has taken care of itself so far. And I would think that America, in fact, it's not a one-way street, Israel taking from the United States. Israel is giving the United States an extraordinary bargain in the Middle East. It's the one stable democratic ally which the United States can count on. Mr. Natai, inasmuch as you're a Zionist and are committed to a Jewish state, given the fact that demographic predictions tell us that there will be an Arab majority within the current borders of Israel, does this not challenge the foundations of the very state which you are committed to? Uh, I know of the latest uh, figures, population figures, that mm -hmm. actually show a decrease in the Arab birth rate, particularly in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. as a result of the higher education and the universal education for women that didn't exist prior to Israel, uh, prior to 1967. Now, if you ask me, would I reject Palestinians or Arabs living in, in our midst? Ridiculous. Of course not. They're part of, they're citizens of Israel. If they... No, no, I'm talking about the West Bank and Gaza. See, we're still going back oh, to yes, the core yes. of it. Yes, I agree. Whatever okay. will be the final arrangement, these people should be free to multiply as they wish. I think that it is written in the Bible, multiply and uh, be fruitful. I think these people should have that right. I'm not going to start uh, enforcing a birth control program under any circumstance. Thank you. With that biblical injunction, I was... Mr. Abram, one more question to Mr. Natai. Mr. Natai, since the subject is what should the United States do, may I ask you if you could summarize why, in your opinion, the United States should oppose the creation of a PLO state? I think the United States should oppose the creation of a Palestinian state for several reasons. The first one being that it is unjust to demand the creation of a 22nd Arab state and a second Palestinian state at the expense of the only Jewish state. I think it also would defeat the hopes of those moderate Palestinians who genuinely want to reach a peace accommodation with Israel. Thank you. Mr. Th Jomi, oh, another question. Mr. Natai, as someone who would say that you believe in democracy, do you believe that Israel can, can continue as a garrison state and still remain a democratic state? Mr. Jami, either you didn't hear what I said before, or for your benefit, I'll repeat it again. No, Israel does not intend to remain a garrison state. Israel wants to live in peace and wants to be secure. If that is called, involves maintaining uh, military guarantees, our own military guarantees against the destruction uh, of people who surround us, yes, I believe we should fight for our survival. If I have to, I'll fight again, but I hope not to. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jones. That is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu there at 28 years old in a debate. All right, we're going to speak to John Burke military service member who has defended American liberty. We'll talk to him about this, about where Hamas got many of their weapons that they used in the attack against Israel. We'll be back with more on the Wake Up America show at wakeupamericashow.com. Undeniable and hugely consequential moral difference between Israel and her enemies. The Israelis are surrounded by people who have explicitly genocidal intentions towards them. The charter of Hamas, is explicitly genocidal. It looks forward to a time based on Quranic prophecy when the earth itself will cry out for Jewish blood, where the trees and the stones will say, O oh Muslim, there's a Jew behind me, come and kill him. This is a political document. We are talking about a government that was voted into power by a majority of Palestinians. The discourse in the Muslim world about Jews 
is utterly shocking. Not only is there widespread Holocaust denial, there's Holocaust denial that then asserts we will do it for real if given the chance. The only thing more obnoxious than denying the Holocaust is to say that it should have happened. It didn't happen, but if we get the chance, we will accomplish it. There are children's shows in the Palestinian territories and elsewhere that teach five-year-olds about the glories of martyrdom and about the necessity of killing Jews. And this gets to the heart of the moral difference between Israel and her enemies. And this is something I discussed in The End of Faith. To see this moral difference, you have to ask what each side would do if they had the power to do it. What would the Jews do to the Palestinians if they could do anything they wanted? Well, we know the answer to that question, because they can do more or less anything they want. The Israeli army could kill everyone in Gaza tomorrow. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when they drop a bomb on a beach and kill four Palestinian children, as happened last week, this is almost certainly an accident. They're not targeting children. They could target as many children as they want. Every time a Palestinian child dies, Israel edges ever closer to becoming an international pariah. So the Israelis take great pains not to kill children and other non-combatants. Now, what do we know of the Palestinians? What would the Palestinians do to the Jews in Israel if the power imbalance were reversed? Well, they have told us what they would do. For some reason, Israel's critics just don't want to believe the worst about a group like Hamas, even when it declares the worst of itself. We've already had a Holocaust and several other genocides in the 20th century. People are capable of committing genocide. When they tell us they intend to commit genocide, we should listen. There is every reason to believe that the Palestinians would kill all the Jews in Israel if they could. Would every Palestinian support genocide? Of course not. But vast numbers of them, and of Muslims throughout the world, would. Needless to say, Palestinians in general, and not just Hamas, have a history of targeting innocent non-combatants in the most shocking ways possible. They've blown themselves up on buses and in restaurants. They've massacred teenagers. They've murdered Olympic athletes. They now shoot rockets indiscriminately into civilian areas. And again, the charter of their government in Gaza explicitly tells us that they want to annihilate the Jews, not just in Israel, but everywhere. Good morning. If you're just tuning into the Wake Up America show, I'm your host, Austin Peterson. That was Sam Harris reading from his book, The End of Faith. If you're just tuning into the show, then do us a favor. Click that like button and subscribe to the channel. We're grateful to hear from you this morning and your thoughts. You can also text the show at 573-319-1586. Again, you can text the show at 573-319-1586. I am getting some text messages uh, from people who are saying things like, Oh, Austin, you lost and Spike won, or Austin won and Spike lost. But I think that that really misses the point uh, of these debates and discussions that we're having this morning about the conflict between Israel and Hamas. It's really not about someone winning and someone losing. It's really about finding out what's right and wrong. What is the truth? Getting to the question of the matter. So I would really invite you, for anyone who's listening to the show this morning, to consider trying and look at these from meta-analyses. That's really been my conflict and struggle, is to look at things like this from as impartial a side as you can. Now, of course, for those of you who don't know me, and this is obviously, I know, the kind of confession that gets people to click off and turn off the show and to go somewhere else and never listen to me again, which is fine. I'm willing, if you know that I'm willing to lose you as a listener, 
that you know that at least I'm being honest with you, that I am not religious and I don't come at this from a worldview of taking one side or another because of the religious conflicts. As a matter of fact, I think that the religious uh, connotations of these fights really is cancerous to the discussion of what we're really talking about here, which is the question of life and death, the conflict and struggle of civilizations, which I think goes even above and beyond the religious questions that are evolved in this one. Of course, I know many people look at these, look at this as the Holy Land, but I see this as a, as a conflict of civilizations. That's why earlier this morning, I played a clip from objectivist philosopher Ayn Rand, where she talked about this as a, as a conflict between the savages and a conflict between the, um, a civilized nation and savages. In the last few weeks, I've been reading more uh, Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, where he talks about the idea of the warrior class versus what he calls the slave class, or the master morality versus the slave morality. Now, of course, we all want to remember our Aristotle here, and I'm going to introduce some ideas to you that you should consider, but not necessarily accept. Remember, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to consider an idea and not necessarily have to accept it. So in this idea of the master morality and the slave morality, now Friedrich Nietzsche was specifically criticizing Christianity and Jesus. Nietzsche saw himself as the Antichrist, not in the, not in the metaphysical sense as Christians see someone as the Antichrist, but as like the unholy warrior the, to fight against, you know, in, the, in some apocalyptic struggle between the forces of good and evil at the end times. But he saw himself as the, the Antichrist in the sense of the rejection of the morality of Jesus, since Nietzsche saw the Christianity and the foundations of Christianity in the, uh, the end of the, the Roman Empire as the, uh, as the slave morality or the, the revenge of the slaves. And the reason why he made this argument, uh, the distinction between master morality and slave morality, and please excuse me if I, I butcher it, I'm obviously not a genius like many of these philosophers, or like, and I'm not as brilliant as the, the guests that we have on the show. That's why I always invite people on who are smarter than I am to talk about these things. But for now, you've got me. We don't have John Burke. He's not here. So you're going to have to hear my, hear my take on these things. But in reading Nietzsche's philosophy of the explanation of the difference between master morality and the slave morality, Nietzsche makes a distinction between who are the masters and who are the slaves. And he argues that modern morality, uh, which is a Christian morality largely in the United States and of course in Europe at the time of uh, Nietzsche's time, the late 1800s, but his argument was beyond good and evil, and the idea that the master morality is one that is beyond good and evil, meaning that civilizations and individuals act in their own best interest if they are a part of the master class, if they are a part of the warrior class. They act in without regards to the concepts, the morality of the slaves, which is to say the morality that the moral... Um, uh, sphere that we all operate in. This, these people are good. These people are evil. Israel is good. Um, you know, Hamas is evil or reverse that if you're a leftist socialist or, uh, you know, in favor of, of the Palestinians, right? You was so operating outside and above this idea of good and evil or what, um, 
which was what Nietzsche would call the slave morality, is the master morality. And in the master morality, and he's call, he, he harkens back to the aristocrats of Rome, he harkens back to the, um, to the warriors of Rome, the, he, he harkens back to the Caesars of Rome, he talks about the warrior class, or the people who do what is in their best interest, or in the best interest of their people, or their government, or of their civilization, without regards to the concepts of good and evil that are held by the slave class. Of course, Christianity arose uh, amongst the slave class of the Roman Empire. The masters of the slaves, those the, the Romans, they did not look at the world in the way that we look at the world today, in this concept of good and evil, this conflict between God and Satan, if you will. They were beyond the concept of good and evil. And throughout history, we have seen you know, dictators, tyrants, world leaders, you know, civilizations uh, acting in their own best interests as above or beyond the concept of good and evil. And of course, the the question, the moral question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that is that you know, would we be a part of, as you know, Ayn Rand uh, described earlier, a part of the civilized, advanced nation? Would we be a warrior class? that, you know, beyond good and evil, acting in our own best interests, acting in the best interests of our people, as the American uh, um, government did when it pushed the Native Americans off of their, their uh, land at that time that was held, right? And they were beyond the concept of good and evil. Despite being heavily influenced by Christianity, the um, American Manifest Destiny was very much channeled Nietzsche's master morality, being that these people are savages, if you will. Perhaps even they could be considered beyond the concept of good and evil. But Nietzsche might describe them as a barbarian class versus a warrior class. So Nietzsche dis makes a distinction between a barbarian class and a and the warrior class, but still places them in the in the concept of the master morality because they are willing to impose their will. They, the masters, are willing to do what is necessary for self-preservation, one, and two, to preserve their family, three, to preserve their culture and their civilization. Therefore, we may say that they are part of the master morality. And the slaves, the morality of the slaves, are the morality of the people on the streets of New York City who are crying out against the, the crying you know, Israel, against Israeli genocide, or the Israeli people who are deeply religious saying this land is our land because God has given it to us. And we, you know, the, the uh, Palestinian terrorists are, are engaging in a, a war against us and they are immoral and they are evil. Still, that would be a part of what Nietzsche described as the slave morality. But the master morality says we, were, we are going to do what is in our own best interests, regardless of what the slaves wish. Right? And Nietzsche saw the, the Christianity as the revolt of the slaves against the master class. In other words, this idea of a conscience, right, which is what you saw Spike Cohen expressing earlier, this idea of a conscience was a way to try and enslave the masters, if we, if we could say this is sort of an oxymoron here, that the, that the Christian morality of good and evil was a way to enslave, in, in reverse, the masters who, being beyond good and evil, the concepts of good and evil, would torture or kill or enslave the, uh, the, the Christians of Rome or, you know, to look at any, uh, you know, for example, who would be beyond good and evil? Genghis Khan, 
right? Beyond this concept of good and evil, a member of the warrior class, you might call him a barbarian, you could say he's a part of a barbarian class. But Genghis Khan, you know, uh, enlightened, uh, noble warrior or uh, barbarian savage, I think you could say that perhaps Genghis Khan would be a, you know, a member of the savages, right? But here's the, the problem. Knowing that there is a, you know, a a warrior class that are known as the barbarians or savages, if you will, as Ayn Rand describes them, these, these people, these groups, these, these civilizations, they are beyond good and evil. Meaning that if you are a member of a civilization that believes in the concept of good and evil, in other words, if you accept Nietzsche's slave morality, you are, so, you are vulnerable to not only the warrior class, let's, let's not say Genghis Khan, let's use the concept of Kublai Khan. If you know anything about Kublai Khan, he was very much an enlightened warrior who expanded uh, the empire of Genghis Khan and, all, and also introduced arts and culture uh, and was an enlightened warrior, if you will. So think Kublai Khan, right? But if you were to understand the Hamas terrorists as, you know, they can say that they believe in the concept of good and evil, if you will, but they act as unenlightened savages, right? They act as terrorists, as barbarians. But, and yet, their behavior in their attack on the nation state of Israel and, and their murdering of, of children, in, innocent children, and, and the taking of hostages of, uh, this is the, these are the behaviors of the savages of the warrior class, meaning that they are acting in what they believe is their own self-defense, their own self-interest. They are beyond this concept of good and evil. And so, you know, in reading Nietzsche and, and in trying to understand these conflicts, I think it honestly makes more sense when you try and piece together the Israeli-Hamas conflict, rather than looking at it from your Christian worldview, your Jewish worldview, or, or even an atheist worldview, if you will, uh, rather than looking at it from a worldview that is tinged by a background of this concept of good and evil, which in many ways does keep us chained down, because who can claim to have, at some point, you know, moral equivocation must occur. Spike, while I, I pinned him down on this concept of a moral equivocation between Hamas and Israel, and he refused to do so, it is quite often... Uh, something you'll hear that, oh, well, Israel did, killed this, well, he, he did say Israel has killed far more civilians than Hamas has done. Well, that's only because Hamas doesn't have the opportunity to do so, and we know that they would do so if they were given the opportunity. But why should I care about the lofty principles or ideals or the, the beliefs or viewpoints of someone who is trying to kill us and trying to kill our family? At the end of the day, I don't think that we can or that we really do have that luxury because like I was explaining, and, and Spike seemed to say, well, you know, even if they came here to fight us and uh, the aliens came here to fight us, we would we nuke their home planet? You're goddamn right we would, motherfucker. I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say, kill them all. Yes, we would nuke their home planet if that's where they were launching attacks from. Because beyond the concept of good and evil, beyond the concepts of civilians or, and terrorists and, and nation states and individuals, beyond this concept is the is the right of the individual to self-defense and to gather together those around you for self-defense beyond the concept of good or evil, pro-Israel, pro-Christian, pro-Jew, pro-Muslim, beyond their, these, these slave moralities, 
Beyond the moralities of the slaves are the moralities of the masters, and the masters are the warrior class, and the warrior class can be noble savages, or they can be ignoble savages. They we, they can add, they, but but one thing that is true that is a universal truth is that this warrior class will do what it believes to be is in its own be best interest, no matter what your lofty goal principles are, no matter what religion you are. The warrior class, be they lofty, be they Kublai Khan or be they Genghis Khan, will do what is necessary to protect their own people. If I were the president of the United States and there were an alien invasion and the alien planet from which they're launching these attacks was able to be destroyed, would I do so? You damn right. Absolutely, I would do so. That is the that is beyond good and evil. We have no time to determine whether or not the the aliens actually might have some good people or there might be some civilian aliens or things like that. We are in a struggle for our own existence. We are in a struggle for our own survival. This requires the morality of the masters, not the morality of the slaves. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this. And again, remember, it is the mark of an educated mind to consider an idea without necessarily accepting it. Before we throw out all of Western civilization, uh, well, I guess Nietzsche counts as part of Western, Western civilization. Before we throw out uh, all history of civilization from the late 1800s and, and before that, um, just before you throw out the concept of good and evil entirely, just consider that those who have declared war against us, the savages and what their morality is, the morality of the masters is to look at all of us with our petty concepts of good and evil and to say, we care not what, they, what their beliefs are. We care not uh, about civilian casualties, women, children. We will do whatever is necessary to advance the Mongolian Empire. We will do whatever is necessary to advance the Hitlerian Empire, right? You can see, you know, many people, of course, claim that Friedrich Nietzsche was a proto-Nazi, and, and that's an, an argument that we could have for another day. But it didn't matter, because at the end of the day, we had to do what was necessary to fight back against the master morality. Because while you could say Kublai Khan was the enlightened uh, noble, uh, very clearly, I think we could say that the uh, the Germans were uh, savages. So, but still, we're operating in the slave morality in that sense. And again, again these are just things that I'm thinking, you know, uh, based on my recent studies and philosophy, these are the challenges that I find myself struggling with in this conflict, trying to take a meta view uh, of these discussions, these mornings, and, no, you know, having a libertarian view, of course, places me in the morality of the slaves simply because I do believe in a concept of good and evil. But in knowing that there are, there are the masters who care not for our morality, how can we, you know, have, how can we have our views in a, against a society of civilization that is dedicated to our destruction? I wonder what your thoughts are. You can send us a text at 573-319-1586. Again, that's 573-319-1586. Giving you a lot to think about today. All right. Well, if you haven't, I didn't really do any uh, advertisements today. I just kind of felt weird about it, obviously, because of the, um, the, 
the stories that we have today. So please do visit apforlibertyshop.com. Remember, Halloween is coming, and uh, there might not be enough time for you to get your stuff in time if you don't order today. So if you're thinking about getting some items from the Halloween store over at apforlibertyshop.com, definitely check that out at apforlibertyshop.com. Oh, and don't forget about that, that there is a 15% off coupon going on right now. So if you want 15% off, use the code Skull and Bones at checkout. A little nudge, nudge, wink, wink for our conspiracy theorist friends out there. Use that code Skull and Bones if you want to get that 15% discount. Of course, monthly subscribers to the Wake Up America show always get that 20% discount. Shout out to all our monthly subscribers. Difficult topic. Hopefully it comes to an end very soon and we can see peace. But who knows? We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for watching. Make sure to click like and subscribe to the channel before you leave on the Wake Up America show at wakeupamericashow.com.